Those of you with us from the beginning, those early days, will know that uh, one of the things we did when we barbecued, and we'll do it again when we have a barbecue time, is I would take brats and I would put them on the fire and nicely brown them, cook them through, cut them in half and then into little segments, and then squeeze lemon in there with a splash of Tabasco. And invariably, for those who see it for the first time, there is suspicion and reluctance. But I've watched many a pack of brat be devoured as the taster, the foretaste of the steak or the chops or the fish or whatever is to come. This is but a taster. Because what we will do is we will drill down on them over the next year. We're following, practicing the way, and we will bring those into our table communities as we have done with the Sabbath. But I want to create an interest in you because the taste is what compels you and compels me. The second little T I want to use is the, the idea of a track. These are tracks upon which the railway line runs. You know, in my conversations with many of you, I hear the disappointment and the distress of not keeping a personal rhythm with Jesus daily. And I've often thought of that. I've often thought, well, well, I know what I do and it really works for me. But I also know the struggles and wrestles that it is for some. And I think what this gives us is the kind of tracks we need to be able to run our spiritual life on towards wholeness and maturity and readiness to walk with Jesus. Craig Dextra says, The life of the Christian faith is the practice of many practices. I thought that was a magnificent summation of it all. The life of the Christian faith is the practice of many practices. Now, please understand this. Many of you have come to faith because of an encounter, maybe at a church, a friend, someone walked through the overriding redemptive narrative of the, of the text, and you said yes, and you started your journey. But oftentimes what starts in a feeling, emotional sense, rarely stays that way. It is the rhythm, Paul speaks, of the athlete who gets up early every morning to train, who trains at the end. Olivia, when she was still running for Vanguard, I used to love going on my prayer walks along um, Back Bay, and the next minute I would just see this blonde bomber come screaming past me. If I was lucky, I got a side glance like, please don't mess with me, I am doing the Lord's work, as she ran at a speed past me. And I realized then that my running days were over, hers have just begun, and then Cedar disrupted that. Her little boy. But, but Paul uses the language of the athlete, and he basically appeals to us that the athlete is only able to achieve what he achieves or she achieves by their ability to keep the habit of training. Aristotle speaks of habits like second nature. A habit becomes second nature. Then you know it's part of you. When your instinct is to pray because you've learned the habit of prayer. When the instinct is to fast, you've learned the habit of fasting. When the instinct is to confess, it's now your second nature. It's what you do. And so Paul writes about the athlete, and he says they become who they are in preparation for the games because of their training. I remember for the first time encountering competitive swimmers. And I could not believe the diligence with which they woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, would go to the pool for an hour or two, 
after school, because that's the context in which I saw it for the first time, they would go and swim for another hour or two. And I, who am very much a grounded human being, who finds liquid uh, creation of questionable value. I, I, I'm not sure why people would want to put their bodies through th- such duress. Swimming in the morning, swimming in the evening. But the athlete only achieves what they achieve by creating the habit that second, without even thinking about that. He then goes on to speak about the soldier, where you're able to take your weapon apart in the dark of night. That's what we had to learn to do. They turn all the lights off in our bungalow, and we would have our rifles, and they'll say, okay, take them apart, and we had to take them apart. And then they put the lights on to make sure that you had done it properly. Then take the lights off again and put it together, and I'm counting. And you had to be able to have that instinct that knowledge, the habit of taking your weapon apart, putting your weapon back together again. And then the farmer, Paul speaks about. I have uncles, cousins who farmed. They've, some of them um, have died. But I remember going to my one uncle. He had a massive farm in the middle of South Africa. And of course, I was 14, so sleep started at about 3 o'clock in the morning and normally traversed till about 11 o'clock, you know. But on the odd and rare occasion, I'd wake up, my uncle would be in his pickup at four o'clock in the morning as the sun peeped over with his dog, and he would get in his, in his pickup and, and go look at his cornfields, his maize. See, what Paul is trying, I, I'm sure he's pacing up and down and saying, how can I communicate this in a way that people can understand it? He said, ah, oh, this is the way I'll do it. The athlete creates the habit. The soldier creates the habit. And the farmer creates the habit. And the spiritual disciplines are the habit-forming realities. It's cold sometimes, dear friend. It's sometimes raw and gutsy to get up in the morning and flick the switch on and get that cup of coffee or tea and go and grab the nearest blanket. I put out a jacket of mine every night. So when I get up in the mornings, and I do wake up early, normally around about 4, 430 And then I go downstairs and it's cold and I'm thinking, what on earth am I doing? This is just absolutely ridiculous. Until I sip that first cup of black tea, then I know God is good, life is good, (laughs) tea is good. Spiritual disciplines are the habits, the tracks upon which we develop our spiritual lives. Does that make sense? Okay. When we look at the text, what we see, and remember our subject tonight is celebration, that the overriding meta-narrative of the text is celebration. Genesis 1. The artist God created this first human being as he created the earth and the fullness of the earth and he stood back and he looked at his artistic endeavor and he said, oh, this is good. Meryl and I, we just celebrated our 42nd wedding anniversary. I know, pretty amazing. And so friends of ours have have a ranch up the, um, the north coast, and so we went there and uh, watched the sun come up on these brutally red, almost stark red, assaulting red hills as the sun came up. I've got a great picture of the shadow, our shadow, against these six, uh, beautiful black uh, red mountains. Why am I saying all of that? I'm saying that because God looked at the artist. Oh, this is good. Oh, this is. In fact, this is very 
Good. Celebration is what leaked out of the throat of God. I think he grabbed Jesus and said, the word of God. He said, what do you think, man? Isn't this cool? Isn't this the most amazing thing? Holy Spirit, what do you think? Because we know the Holy Spirit was there. Then he grabbed a few angels. What do you think? Think it's, oh, it's good. Oh, oh, it's really, really good. And then right at the end, uh, Revelation 19, we get this most exquisite picture. I'm, I'm an incurable romantic when it comes to weddings. And I've done weddings in a basement where we all sat Persian style on rugs. And I'm the stiffest human being God ever created. I find it profoundly uncomfortable to cathedrals. But my goodness me, when that bride walks down the aisle, whether she's 18 or 54, there is something inside of me that shouts eternity and that great climactic moment of the ages when we, the bride, dressed in those robes of righteousness, go to be with him. And he comes, the Bible tells us, on his steed, on his horse, And he sends his angels out to the four corners of the globe. And he says, come on, gather my bride. Bring her in. And then it says that she is in the um, uh, standard Christian Bible, I think whatever the translation is, says she is in fine linen, colorful, beautifully attired. As the choral harmony of the angelic hosts sing and we go to be with them and whatever that looks like. The Bible starts with celebration. The Bible ends with celebration. And if that were not enough, it gets splashed throughout the text. The great celebratory moments. Climax, I think, at least one of them, when Jesus does his first miracle, according to the account of John, his best friend, and he was at a wedding. And he's not even ready to start doing his thing. And they run out of wine, the ultimate indignity for a bride's parents. And they come, Mary comes to him and says, listen, can't you do something? Now, I wonder what she knew, because according to John's gospel, he hadn't done a miracle yet. So why did she have the audacity to say, hey, JC, would you do something here? Would you stop an awkward moment, an embarrassing moment? Could you do something? What has she seen? What did she know? What was seeded in her heart to expect the introduction of Jesus onto the public stage to be through the creation of fine wine? Oh, it's the religionist and the legalist's nightmare. What if they got drunk? It was obviously magnificent grape juice. Obviously. No, it wasn't. It was fine wine. Jesus knew how to celebrate. This gospel, dear friends of ours, is a gospel of celebration. It is we who always put our dank, dark robes over our shoulders as if we are broken by the twisted demands of a message that we cannot fulfill. Oh, absolutely not. From the beginning, the middle, and the end, there is this incredible narrative of celebration. I went through Acts chapter 2 this morning. Oh, Hannah, I'm sorry. I'd asked her to read the scripture, and I completely forgot. (laughs) Hannah, I'm so sorry. Do you want to come and read it now? Yes, come on, come on. That was my fault, Hannah. Yeah, I will, yeah, I'm so sorry. 
Can you ever forgive me and buy me a car? Anything like that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, come on, read it for us. <laughs> Why didn't you remind me? You should have reminded me. You should have walked up and slapped me and said, sit down, I've got something to read, you know? Something. Yeah, well, here's a, here's a microphone. Not that we need it, really. It's not that big of a place. Hello? Okay. Hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness. Praise him with trumpet blast. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. (laughs) Do you get this incredible sense of the celebration we have been born into again, that rebirth, the invitation to a life of celebration. I was just mulling over Acts chapter 2 today, the the great passage of the early church, and I was somewhat startled by the language once again used, and this is the NIV, in which it describes this early church. Just, just, Just cozy up to the scriptures. Imagine we're around a fire, Stu's playing music, Dana's just poured a, grub, a whole bunch of red wine. We've had some cheese and biscuits and meat and I don't know, whatever else. And, and um, someone gets up and says, hey, guys, close your eyes. I, I want you to imagine something with me for just a moment. And it says this, they devoted themselves, this deep, passionate world of emotion. Here was a church that knew how to devote themselves to this, to this. You'll notice I will never call this a meeting or a service. This is a gathering of community. And that's why I don't mind playing and mixing it up and messing with it. Because we're not here to uphold a liturgy. We are here to celebrate together the goodness and the kindness of God in whichever way we deem it appropriate. They devoted themselves. And then it goes on to say to all those things. And they were filled with awe. What? Wow. What is God going to do now? What is he up to? As many signs and wonders were performed by the apostles, and then all the believers were together. What a miracle in an age of deconstruction, separation, and isolation. What a miracle. What an anti-cultural moment when they were together and had everything in common, which yours is mine. In, in, in the sense that I've loved recently, we've had some people uh, who really had needs, A car broke down. An unexpected medical bill needed to be paid. And the community just said, I got this. I've got 200 bucks. I've got 500 bucks. I've got 1,000. Will 1,000 do? I feel like an auctioneer. But, But do you understand the celebratory nature here? Not eyes rolling. Oh, there she goes again. There he goes again. Always needy. No, no. What do you need? Got it. Got it. I got it. They were together, they had everything in common. They sold their property and their possessions and they gave so that everyone had no need. There were no needy amongst them. Ladies and gentlemen, what a celebratory tone to this early community. Each day, they continued to meet together in temple courts and house to house. 
This is the temple court moment. This is when we rally together and we come together because there's something powerful. There were thousands of believers by then. You can imagine the temple court in Jerusalem as someone brought a lyre and someone brought a, 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 a clangy instrument and someone brought a whatever, brought a trumpet and they start worshiping. And there's this, I, I love worshiping in rural Africa because there's no stage. The first time I, I was preaching in a village called Ngezimane, I walked into this dingy school hall, dust everywhere. And of course, my young Western mind thought, ooh, I wonder where the worship team is. Until one woman started singing, hallelujah, hosanna, hallelujah, hosanna, hallelujah, hosanna, hallelujah, hosanna. And behind her was another woman, hallelujah, hosanna. In front of her little kid, Zanna, and right at the back, the guys, hallelujah. Now, isn't that what's being described here? The spontaneous, explosive worship, because God is worthy of our praise. Every day, they met in the temple courts. Every day, it wasn't, oh, what, Chris? You want us here every Sunday? Come on. Don't you know this is the 21st century? We're busy people. We've got to go to the brewery. We've got to go to coffee shop. And you can't expect us. No, they did it every day because celebration was central and key to who they were as a people. And they broke bread in their homes. They ate. They feasted together. Thank you for being a feasting community. It took a while to get that up and running. But oh, how beautiful it is when we look at the spread over and over and over again. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Celebration now. Come on. You with me? That's, what's funny, Ben? All right. Cool in the gang. That's what it is. That's what you're reading here. They broke bread in their homes. They ate. They ate with gladness and sincere hearts. <laughs> Praising God and enjoying favor with the people because the people want to be around those who are celebratory. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Don't you see an extraordinary community? Don't you see a remarkable group of people fashioned together from many nations, forging and finding community? Uh, Henry Nowen, I've only recently, fairly recently discovered his writings, a remarkable Catholic brother. And um, he speaks of this in the community that he served, where of, of disadvantaged, of um, disabled people. I, th I think those words are okay. And, and he just writes about finding celebration with such broken people. Finding celebration with the woman who hits her head incessantly against a wall. Finding celebration with, with the, the, the man who sits there brokenhearted because once again the promise of a family member coming to see him did not materialize. Finding celebration with the injured and the hurt and the lonely. That, dear friends, is the spiritual discipline. I'll quote, come to that quote in a moment. Thank you. Someone gave me a book called The Power of Moments 
by the Heath brothers, Chip and Dan. Their fundamental thesis is how to examine defining moments, identify the traits that they share in common. I know those are many words. Defining moments and identifying the traits they share in common. Then how can we create such defining moments? Even the marketplace is curious. How can we create a life of celebration? High points. Does it just happen? Do we create it? Do we live in bland, boring, colorless lives devoid of sweet celebration? Or do we have to choreograph moments at great expense and cost? Can I say this, dear friends? Please don't judge me, or you probably will, having said that. I don't know if some of you can celebrate if you're sober. You need to have a few shots of whiskey, tequila, or vodka. Because your soul is so wired, weighted by the darkness of the life around you, that it's almost impossible to celebrate. One of my favorite things, and we've had it at so many weddings, is when the unbeliever sits there and asks the question, who are these people? Why is a wedding so profoundly celebratory? And yet hardly any alcohol has been consumed. No one is high. Because we have a reason to celebrate. Celebration comes from the Hebrew verb hagag. I need to see what I can leave out here because I've taken way too long. It's to prepare, keep, and observe a feast or a festival. I remember, I'm going to skip this a little bit. I remember Todd Proctor saying to me when I first met him, I don't know, 18 years ago or something, he was leading Rock Harbor, it was the throbbing, thriving community, and he said to me, Chris, this generation needs permission to lament. And I was very curious by that. I'd never heard that before. There's a deep cry, and you know that, of authenticity and reality. In fact, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, says, this is the age of authenticity, and, and I love the fact that there is the freedom and the honesty not to live spiritual lives of pretense. Where you feel like you have to walk in, oh dang, okay, let me get myself, let me arrive, just like I'm putting on my Sunday shirt. Now put my face on, hey, oh, great. And, and I'm so delighted we found the freedom to be honest about our anxieties and our vulnerabilities and our fears and our depressions and our heavinesses. Can I tell you about a recent anxiety I carry every night? My heart goes out at night. It did last night. Didn't go out completely. So when I climb into bed at night, I wonder, my inner speakers, will my heart go out tonight? Last night I spent about two to three hours just walking. There is a, a breathing method that I have to use to breathe, and hopefully my heart will get back into rhythm. Take some medication. So I understand anxieties. I never had that till three years ago. So there's no judgment in this. We have to be honest about our anxieties. I have a hearing aid. To get this on me, I have to take this hearing aid out. Because I can't hear you. Very embarrassing. Super awkward. The sound guy says, can we fit a mic with your hearing aid? So it's good. 
It's good to be able to be truthful about our anxieties and vulnerabilities, our fears and our depressions. And even some of the spiritual practices, I think, give us form to wrestle through these things. Prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, confession. But dear friends, the tomb is empty. And why I love the spiritual principle is because, I mean, the spiritual practice is it because it allows us to be both in Friday and in Sunday. It allows us to both live in the realities of the trauma of where I'm at with the full anticipation of what comes ahead. Last Sunday night, Dana was talking about worship and she cited the story of Paul and Silas beaten to a pulp, midnight, their legs in, in stocks. And here they are lifting their voices to God in prayer. There it is right there. The darkness of a life defeated. The celebration of a life freed up. I remember coming across this for the first time in the 70s. Merlin Carruthers wrote a book called From Prison to Praise. He discovered he met Christ in prison. And it was in prison where he turned his life around. Remember this book, my love? And he started worshiping God as a prisoner. And he said he could not believe the depth, beauty, and wonder of his soul as he found celebration within the confines of incarceration. And I remember thinking, is that real? Is that truthful? Can that happen? Surely I should be the super grumpy dude because I'm in prison. Isaiah 60, I'm moving as quick as I can. 61, listen to this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, let it massage your soul, dear friend, and the, the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all who mourn. To provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Oh, I've got ashes, but he's put a crown of beauty on my head. He's put a crown of beauty on my head. I live within the ashes of my anxieties and vulnerabilities and stresses and depressions. But he puts a crown of beauty of celebration on my head. The oil of joy. Instead of mourning, I mourn. But out of my mourning comes joy. A garment of praise. Instead of the spirit of despair. What are the spiritual uh, Disciplines do, they give me the habit of praise when despair wants to grip my soul. Richard Foster, great book called Celebration of Discipline, says this. Celebration brings joy into life and joy makes us strong. The scripture tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Celebration is central to all the spiritual disciplines. Without a joyful spirit of festivity, the disciplines become dull, death-breaking tools of the modern Pharisee. Any dis discipline should be characterized by carefree gaiety and a sense of thanksgiving. And then I really love this by Henry Nouwen. He writes, ecstasy comes from the Greek word ekstasis which in turn derived from ek, meaning out of, and stasis, meaning a state of standstill. To be ecstatic literally means to be outside of a static place. An, an, an ecstatic person, and he goes on, and we'll read this now, is someone who stands and does not allow themselves to stand still in their anxiety, vulnerability, pain, trauma, heartache, but they stand outside of it. 
and allow God to come and breathe. And this is what he says. Celebration is not just a way to make people feel good for a while. For that, I need alcohol. For that, I need dope. It's a way in which the faith in the God of life is lived through both laughter and tears. This celebration goes beyond ritual, custom, and tradition. It's the unceasing affirmation that underneath all ups and downs of life is a solid current of joy. Isn't that just exquisite? Okay. Practically, two ways. The first is the rhythm and ritual of events that come up all the time. I don't know what your birthdays were like. At our Thanksgiving, I asked the question, what was your favorite birthday as a child and why? And I was interested, partly because some of us are a little older in years, we remember little, that we couldn't remember what our best birthday was. But, but there is something to be said about the power of repetition. There is something to be said about the celebration of doing the things well. Birthdays, celebrations, Sundays, it reflects intentionality and thought. I was mulling over Miriam. Remember Exodus 15? Are you still with me, by the way? Remember Exodus 15? They come through the Red Sea. Miriam, like Dana tonight, grabs the timbrel and she starts singing. And it says the woman joined in with her celebration because God has saved us and he has brought us through to the other side. Can I ask you, those of you for whom worship is a nailed to the floor experience, I won't move. I don't care what they say. Would you ever open your heart to let a moment of ecstasy break into your soul? Not because you're an observer of ecstasy, but because you're a participator. In ecstasy. And like Miriam, grab the tambourine and say, This feels so awkward, but I'm going to do it because he is worthy. I actually asked Anna to come ready tonight to dance if it lent itself on this tiny little stage. Because I wanted a visual picture of a modern day Miriam who says, He is worthy. I will dance with all my might. Which leads me to David. In a story well known in 2 Samuel. Remember the story? Where they bring in the ark back. I love this one. I've preached this one with such imagination. I'm an historian. I love time. I love antiquity. And I've tried to research what it would have been like when they brought the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem, to the temple. And it said, David, and it's hot, man. It's hot. I've preached in Dubai when it's 110, 115 degrees. In Israel, when I was there some years ago, it was unbearable. No air conditioning, no chariot, no truck to, to, um, no chariot, no wagon to hide in. David gets out there and he starts dancing and he takes his shirt off. And he, forgive my cowboy imagination, and he starts spinning it over his head and he throws it. And then he takes off his outer garments. Whatever the theologian's translation of that moment is, it seems like it was in his underwear, his undergarments. And he is so ecstatic, because that's what celebration is, of the goodness of God to bring his presence back to Jerusalem in his underwear. And his wife looks 
with this scowl. Oh, I've just broken my glasses. And his wife looks, fortunately they're cheap. His wife looks at him and scowls. Look at the king. Look at the king. And he looks up at her and he says, oh, my precious wife. I will be even more undignified than this. I will not let my feet be nailed to the floor in so-called praise. He is worthy of every ounce of my sweaty energy. And I will dance before him. Michaela, being clamorously foolish. Celebration. I watched. I've seen some of you at weddings. Tired and angle. Jacket half done up. Shirt hanging out. I was at Tyler's wedding. I know what went down. I saw all of you. And it was crazy. It was our, we had a great DJ. It was hour and hour of, and then the next day in worship. <laughs> at the party, I can be clamorously foolish. In fact, the more clamorously foolish I am, the cooler I am. David thought the cooler he is, is who he is in his presence. All right. Moving along quickly, last story about that, and then, then I landed with us. Leave all that out. We went to friend's wedding. Meryl's best friend, she was a um, bridesmaid to Meryl, now lives in Carpinteria. Both of her daughters got married within a year. Sarah married a Jewish guy. I've gone blank. Rachel got married to a Nigerian guy. Three weddings. Yeah, I said two daughters, three weddings. For Sarah's wedding, Michael being Jewish, we were at, on their patio. And what did they do? You know what I'm saying? This corporate celebration. Didn't need the DJ. Just everyone singing and dancing and holding him up and her holding her up. And she's got this beautiful slinky little dress on. And it didn't matter because it's a moment to celebrate and worth of giving our all. Oh, you say, well, that's what Jewish people do. Okay, well, let me tell you. Wedding number two. With Rachel and Uko. Big Nigerian. I mean, he would make Stu look small. Like this. Beautiful brother. And what they did, I mean, that was fabulous. The Thursday night was the Nigerian wedding. And the ladies came and the guys in their skirts, the guys that is, and their, their shirts, and uh, they would make a big announcement. Uh, I wish I could do the African-Nigerian uh, accent. Say, well, now we're going to have the bride's family. And the music would play this kind of cool Nigerian throb, and then the woman would start coming from the side there. And everyone's like, ah. Cool. I mean, cool. You know, you know, not to be judging. You know, you know, when black's cool, it's like really cool. You know, when the whites came, it was like, oh, you know, so embarrassing. I thought, can I just have a, have a quick change? I'm from Africa, everyone. Can I just acknowledge? Because, and, and these, 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 oh, they were so cool. I just was mesmerized by it. And then the white wedding on the Saturday and the DJ and everyone danced for hours and hours. See, it didn't matter which culture it was. The underpinning of eternity breaking in now called the wedding supper of the Lamb. Everyone knew and wanted to be part of the celebration. We can celebrate every day. We can celebrate every big moment. 
He was betrayed with a kiss, but he is risen. He was falsely accused, but he is risen. He faced this sham trial, but he is risen. He was beaten and tortured beyond recognition. We know that from Isaiah 53, but he is risen. He had to carry the instrument of his own destruction on his back, but he is risen. He was nailed to that tree, but he is risen. He was belittled and mocked as he hung there, but he is risen. He felt his father forsook him. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he is risen. He cried out to the father, but he is risen. He died a pauper's death, but he is risen. He was placed in a cold, dank, borrowed cave, but he is risen. Celebration, we as Christians do, is because he is risen. The early Russian Christians greeted each other with, he is risen. We celebrate because we have a hope in the resurrection. That no matter what we're going through, and I don't know where you fit into this story. Were you betrayed? I've been. I mean, like really betrayed to the point where I've had people say to me, we are out to destroy you. Falsely accused way too many times. But he has risen. That's what celebration is. It's the hope of a resurrected life. We don't celebrate because we're optimists, we're enthusiasts, seven on the Enneagram. We celebrate because he has risen, and therein lies our true hope. We're going to come to the table now. And I've asked these precious people who are going to, Troy and Maddie's group, and I've asked this, them to do this with you. As we break bread together, in the spirit of celebration, I've asked them to bless you with this phrase, He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. And I don't know what you're going through tonight. I don't know what challenges you're facing or obstacles are overwhelming you. But we want to declare in the hope of the resurrection, He is risen. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, in anticipation of the cross and the empty tomb, He took bread and He said, Do this in memory of me. While they set it up, I want you to quietly ponder Say, Lord, where am I driven by anxiety? Maybe bitterness, maybe despair, maybe hopelessness. But when I come up to the table, I want to do it within the hope of the resurrection. If he who is the lover of my soul, who faced the most dastardly of deaths, in anticipation that he was risen, walked his way through it tonight, that is our hope. And it's the discipline for which I find an incredible amount of enthusiasm. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. 
And he said, this is my body. I was broken for you. The hope of the resurrection is that we find wholeness in the resurrection. And he took the cup. I'm so sorry for those of you who are sad tonight. Your soul leaps, longs, desires to live a life of celebration. To reflect the early church as recorded in the scriptures. I wish I could take the challenge and obstacle of your joy from you. But you have to go through the cave. I don't know. I don't know another way. Sweet surrender. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that was shed for us. Take. Drink. The hope of the resurrection. Isn't beautiful that when he rose, he went to have a meal with the disciples. He went to have a meal with those on the road to Emmaus. And then that beautiful beach barbecue with Peter. I invite you to the hope of the resurrection celebration. Front rows, would you come please? Take the bread and just go and wait if you don't mind where you're seated. And then we're going to break bread together tonight, different to normal.